You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Well, again, thank you for being here this morning. We're looking at passages about the incarnation of our Lord as it's appropriate that we do so. We're looking this morning um, at that scene where the shepherds uh, hear the angelic hosts and then they go into Bethlehem to see uh, what had happened. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 20 this morning. Uh, again, a very, uh, very familiar passage. And what I'd uh, like, uh, first of all, is I'd like for our little theologians to uh, draw a tapestry. I know Maybe uh, mom and dad need to tell you what a tapestry is, a very ornate uh, piece of fabric. Um, but I want you to place a magnifying glass over a portion of it so that we can see some of those details a little bit more uh, clearly. So uh, I want you to draw that. I, I think that the shepherds, uh, when heaven opens up, are given uh, this uh, magnified view of the work of God, a uh, close-up, as you will, uh, of, the, uh, of the great story of redemption. So uh, draw for me a tapestry uh, with a portion under a... Um, a microscope or a magnifying glass or something. I seem to think you've drawn this for me uh, before. Our passage again is Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. Uh, would you uh, join me in prayer before I read this text for us this morning? Let's pray together. Uh, Holy Father, we are looking now at a text that's very familiar we have for the past few weeks. We pray that you would forgive us for in that familiarity, uh, not treating your word as holy. And so, Spirit, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would um, combat that lethargic view of your word, that we would treat it appropriately this morning and as we go from this place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Luke chapter 2, I'd like for us to begin uh, at verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of our Lord. Um, I, I want to begin with a uh, piece of American poetry by Carl Sandburg. And I don't think that I have shared this uh, poem from the pulpit before. I think it's made its way into a Bible study or two over the past few years, but it doesn't hurt being repeated. Uh, Carl Sandburg uh, is uh, a poet whom I like very much and uh, I was reflecting on a particular poem of his, uh, of his as I was thinking about uh, this uh, scene about shepherds and their employer's sheep standing in a 
smooth plain surrounded by hilly outcroppings. It's quiet uh, and it's cold. And there they are and they're just watching. And into the scene, God unfolds his plan of salvation of these shepherds so that in the cold and quiet night, God incarnates his plan of salvation. Uh, He gives that plan of salvation uh, flesh. He makes his plan undoubtedly known right before these shepherds' eyes. And uh, Carl Sandburg is a treasure of American uh, poetry who uh, died in the late 60s. He won a Pulitzer for his uh, historical work on Abraham uh, Lincoln, which um, I haven't read. I've I've heard it's multi-volumed. But um, he also won two poetry Pulitzers, one in 1951 and one in 1919, which is where his poem Grass first appeared. And in this poem, he laments uh, the forgetfulness of his own age. And his poem uh, begins this way. He says, uh, Pile the bodies high at Auschwitz and Waterloo. Shovel them under and let me work. I am the grass I cover all. He goes on. And pile them high at Gettysburg and pile them high at Irps and Verdun. Shovel them under and let me work. Two years, ten years, and passengers will ask the conductor, what place is this? Where are we now? And then the last line of the poem is, I am the grass, let me work. And You and I know that these shepherds had more than a passing knowledge of the Old Testament as they're standing in that cool night watching those sheep. They know their Old Testament history well. They would have had stories from the Old Testament throughout their childhood, and they would have had commemorated events from Hebrew history in virtually every year of their adult life. They would have heard more than a story or two about Bethlehem, a little village just off in the distance to them right now. They may, in fact, be from Bethlehem. And they would have certainly heard that King David grew up in the house of Jesse right in Bethlehem, working as a shepherd just like themselves some 1,000 years ago. And they certainly would have known Bethlehem's nickname, the City of David. And I think that it is not inconceivable that they were even aware of some dusty old prophet who emphasized Bethlehem as a significant place for the coming of the Messiah. But all of this, it seems, had been buried away, hadn't it? Like all history, people, and events, and significance, over time it gets buried up under new civilizations, and then mounds of dirt mixed with history, and then more mounds of dirt mixed with history, and then a field grows over the top of it, and soon enough grass grows in that field on top of history that's long been forgotten. And soon enough, there's no longer any yearning for a Messiah or a Redeemer at all. All of that history is simply buried under fields of grass. And the grass says, let me work, let me work. And this is a scene in which the grass is peeled away. It's torn end from end to reveal that God is still and always has been truly at work. He's the worker, pile it high with grass all you may. That his plan cannot be buried and forgotten. His plan is alive. His plan is active. And there truly is hope for everything that is broken in the world, everything that is polluted in the world. And there is a future for people trapped under the thumb of a sentence of death. There is hope 
there is hope. Because when God becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son actually incarnates God's entire plan for salvation. At the birth of this baby boy, God made flesh. God incarnates more than just a baby boy. God incarnates His very plan to restore and redeem all things. Our story begins with shepherds keeping watch over their flock during the night. We sometimes picture these shepherds as nomadic vagabonds trying to keep to the fringes of society, rustic environmentalists staying off the grid. And it is true that shepherds at night lived a quiet and lonely existence. And it's true that being a shepherd on night duty somewhat disconnected you from normal society because you sleep during the day and because the bulk of your time is spent with filthy animals. And it's true that being a shepherd, especially shepherding someone else's property, uh, was not the job that most parents wanted their children to pursue. But sheep are not only valuable assets that need shepherds, they are also ignorant animals that need shepherds. They must be babysat. They wander off. They get lost. They fall into ravines. They break their legs on uneven terrain. They eat poisonous vegetation. They drown if they drink from flowing water. And they draw attention from wolves and bears and lions. All of this is actually intensified when the sun sets. So shepherding, caring for these animals at night was serious work. They're not simply traveling vagabonds. The work requires incredible attentiveness as well as resourcefulness and calm problem-solving to manage usually 100 sheep at a time. It's a serious work. Is it not surprising to us then that God would visit a group of people who at this particular time of night are the most vigilantly attentive people in the entire country? Is that surprising to anyone? The most attentive people in the country right now are these people. God visits Mary in her sleep. And it would seem from Scripture that Joseph was also visited uh, in his sleep. God visiting a people who are awake and paying attention ardently, that should stand out to us. Vigilant shepherds peering at dark bushes for predators, at rock promontories for dangerous ledges, and at ignorant sheep who are wandering off in the moonlit shadows. And God comes to them. They're vigilant already. And God makes Himself known. There seems to me to be a lesson here. What are people most vigilant about today? The same time yesterday or the day before, what is it that you were so vigilant about? Where does all of your attention lie? You know, there are crises unfolding all over the world right, all over the world right now. Five and a half year civil war in Syria, violence in Yemen, financial collapse in Venezuela, political divisiveness in our own capital. But if you really want to know what we are most vigilant about, where our eyes are mostly focused, well, it's obvious. We're not most vigilant about those global matters. We're most vigilant about our own family, about our children, about our job, our bank account, our property, 
our immediate community. These are the things that are on our, on our minds more often than anything else. And when God comes to the shepherds, he meets them in the middle of their very self-centered plans. They're not at church. And they're not praying. They're attentive to, if we're honest, profit and their jobs and providing for their families. They're making money right now when God comes to them. And this is important for those who think that God can somehow be pushed away by the affairs of life. You say, I shall busy myself with things of urgent necessity, of rational validity, like paying my bills, building my career, retiring well. And as I busy myself with those things, I really not only have no time for God, I have no need for God. He becomes an unnecessary object, an extracurricular event. Let him run heaven and I'll run my life. But what's remarkable about God coming to a men who are vigilantly focused upon uh, their own needs is this, that God refuses to be pushed aside by our vigilant attention to our own needs. Do you hear me say that? God refuses to be pushed aside by vigilant attention to your own needs. He comes when he wants. He doesn't ask your permission. He makes himself known. He doesn't wait to be slotted into your calendar. And yet, how easy it is to bury him under layers and layers of grass. And as the shepherds do their job of watching, well... God tears the sky apart. Luke says in verse 9 that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And that alone was enough to strike fear in the most well-prepared people of the world. You know how it is when your eyes grow accustomed to a dark room. You begin over time to see everything clearly. We live our lives with such a self-centered attention that we grow comfortable in it. And God gets pushed to the periphery or pushed out of the picture altogether. But as you're wandering in that dark room with eyes suitably adapted for that room and you walk around furniture without bumping into things, you navigate uh, perfectly fine, you make sense of your surroundings with your accustomed eyes, God shows up by turning on the lights. And the glory of God shines around the shepherds and terrifies them. God lights the sky with his own glory. And God speaks to them, doing so through an angel. In the Bible, uh, angels are messengers of the will of God. There will come a time when that bright light will be beheld by each and every one here. The brightness of the gospel actually grows brighter over time in that final judgment where all of us witness this Jesus. Physically before us, we lay our eyes upon Him. God's plan is not stopped because of your busyness. It's happening right now. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you should wonder why these people are here, what these people are doing. The church of God will never be stifled, try as hard as any dictator or holder of great power might try. God will not be stopped.
And there will be a time when that is absolutely undoubted. The lights will be turned on and you'll be filled with fear because Jesus will stand before you himself. And God speaks to these these uh, shepherds through an angel. And this angel ironically tells the shepherds not to be afraid. The angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now what happens next is astounding. The appeal that I just made to you this morning about being a Christian and not seeing that light switch turn on and yet being in the presence of a church that belongs to Jesus Christ is made more relevant in the astounding thing that happens next. Almost as if to prove where all human attention ought to be spent. Where all human attention ought to be spent. The shepherds get to see what true vigilance looks like. What true attention looks like because they get to see a worship service. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Those of you who are Christians, you must invite your friends to church so that they might be able to see what the shepherds see. You must invite your friends and your colleagues, your neighbors to church so that they might have an opportunity to see what the shepherds see. Because when Christians gather on the Lord's day, they aren't there to put on a show. They're not there to be seen in nice clothes. They're there to worship, to be vigilantly vigilantly attentive, to elevate the worth of Jesus, to hear Him preached, to sing His work, to fellowship in His name, to proclaim His death and resurrection, which we do even at this table. And the attentive shepherds get to see the cosmic purpose of all attentiveness, because they get to witness the vigilant attention of the angels who gather together to worship God. Isn't it remarkable that that's what God would show to the shepherds? A glorious heavenly worship service. What is the purpose of your vigilance but to worship God? That is true for everyone in this room. You were made to worship Him. And so God teaches the shepherds what this true vigilance is all about. God peels apart the nighttime sky to reveal a heavenly worship service in which a multitude of angels praise God with one voice, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. A divine A glorious, a beautiful worship service is what the shepherds are greeted with on that cold, dark evening. And in the power of God over all creation, he begins to pick away at Carl Sandburg's grassy field to reveal something that had been long forgotten. There is a plan of redemption to bring peace to the world. There is a plan And the plan is seen in the glorious delight of a heavenly worship service where the angels praise the work of God and the Son, Jesus Christ. And after the shepherds recover themselves, they say in verse 15, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Does that sound strange to anyone, verse 15, to see this thing that has happened? You know, it's not a convenient thing to take all of the sheep that they're responsible for and take them back into the village. 
And Luke didn't see fit to tell us how many sheep are with these shepherds, but historically it wouldn't be uncommon for one shepherd to be responsible for 100 sheep. And so it's very inconvenient to go back into the village, a village filled with sleeping people, nor was it expected that they would take these sheep back into the village before sunrise. Why go through so much trouble? They would like to see this thing that has happened, something has happened. Literally, the shepherds say to themselves, let's see this matter that has happened. It's odd to see the word thing in verse 15. A baby ought not be called a thing, if you didn't know that. But it's not simply a matter of the baby, is it? It's a great, grand event. To the shepherds, this event is not merely the birth of a baby. It's clearly more than that. It's the matter or the thing or the, of the, or the occurrence that is what's critical to them. They were never told that the baby was born of a virgin, and to see a baby of a poverty, poverty-stricken couple would be nothing to write home about. Poverty was all around them. And even to go through trouble to see a baby wouldn't have been that smart of a thing to do, culturally considered, because infant mortality may have been as high as 60%. Who's to say that this child would actually lie, be, uh, remain alive? What they wanted to see was the incarnation of an earth-shattering plan to redeem the world. They're going to see an event, something that has happened God has given them this glimpse of his grand plan for redemption, and they go to see this grand plan concentrated in the birth of a baby. Well, evidence of this is clear when we consider in verses 17 through 19 what actually happened when they saw the baby. You can look at that yourself, but what happens is this. A conversation breaks out. You know, if you think of the various social gatherings that you've been a part of uh, lately, um, a lot of times at a, a dinner party, uh, conversations will turn to politics or the economy or uh, maybe in a highbrow setting to uh, art or music. But it's unplanned, isn't it? It's just conversations uh, tend to go this way. Uh, This evening, in a likely hollowed-out cave for animals around the manger, um, a conversation happens, but it's not just a conversation that happens randomly, like a conversation about politics or the economy or about art and music. It's almost as if the conversation that breaks out is a meeting with an agenda. The shepherds share a report. Doesn't that sound like a formal meeting? The shepherds are actually sharing a report, uh, words that they had heard, events that they had seen that describe what is happening before them right now. They're relying upon instruction. And so the conversation that they have around this major, uh, this manger is actually a sculpted conversation, a governed conversation. The shepherds didn't share the rich experience of being a shepherd or how that experience tilts their heart to spiritual things. They didn't have a wisdom of their own that they offered as they gathered around this manger. What did they talk about? They talked about God's will, God's action, God's words. Those were the things that were at the center of their conversation. 
the revealed word of God, that they might understand the world in which they live. Now, there's a warning here for us. How desensitized Christmas has become, as if God created the kernel of a holiday for us to commemorate and to put a husk on it. Almost as if God drew the basic plans for a holiday and different cultures get to put layers on that holiday as they see fit. Different people groups get to put uh, layers on that holiday as they see fit. He drew up the basic plan, but we get to fill it with its multitude of layers. But God didn't write for us a choose-your-own-adventure book, did he? He wrote out of his own eternal counsel, his own eternal plan, planned from before the foundations of the earth, planned from before creation. That is the plan that is unfolding right now. This plan will never change, will never be broken, and how remarkable that Christians themselves will become so desensitized that they look at Christmas as something that needs to be filled with layers of their own tradition. This is God's plan according to the conversation around that manger. And all of the talk was God's revealed will. It's how God made himself known through his actions and through his word. Gathering around the manger would be a silly affair without some lens of understanding what this baby is about. It's a poor couple who have had a baby and they can't be in a normal inn, so they're outdoors. What's significant about that? That's common, everyday occurrence to the shepherds. Its significance comes from God giving us an interpretation of what is happening here and now around us. We have an opportunity to understand the world, not as we interpret the world, but as God tells us the world has been made and the purpose for the world and the purpose for our life in it. That's the conversation around the manger, a conversation about God's revealed will. As Christians, we excuse ourselves from a knowledge of that revealed word. It's somehow irrelevant or unnecessary and therefore not quite worth our time Keep in mind that the word of redemption in Christ Jesus drove the conversation around that manger. We also have a tendency to chase after phantoms of our own speculation and imagination and experience rather than humbly sit before God's word. Keep in mind that the word of redemption in Christ Jesus drove the conversation around that manger. And we also find ourselves uh, robbing the word of the story of redemption and instead treating that word like a rule book or a collection of policies. Keep in mind that that word of redemption in Christ Jesus that drove the conversation around that major, that manger was God's own word. Uh, you can tell what I'm getting at, you see. This audience around this manger wondered at the breaking in of God's plan of redemption. It was a marvel to them that God's plan was not dead and buried under layers and layers of grass, but that God's plan was alive and real. They wondered and marveled. And they treasured it in their hearts. They decided there and then that they would not forget again, but see to it that this story of redemption was preserved ever before their minds, protected as a treasure kept safe as a treasure. And they pondered it, 
continuing to converse about it, to discuss it, to discern the implications of God's story of redemption upon their lives. One can almost hear in Luke's retelling of this event that he so wishes that there was that same love for God's Word even in his own day. So great was the concentration on the story of the gospel around that manger. It may be that Luke realized in his own day, 60 years after this event, that the church had grown slack in its wonderment of the gospel. That the church had failed to treasure the gospel. And that the church had found other things to converse about, to cogitate over other than the gospel. And dear brothers and sisters, I beg of you, do not allow Faith Presbyterian to turn into a church that by degrees finds matters other than the story of the gospel of redemption to wonder at, to treasure, and to ponder. May the grass never be given half a chance to grow over the glorious story of redemption by this church in particular. May God have mercy on us. Now, In verse 20, our story comes to an apt conclusion for it would seem as though the shepherds do their part. You see, the job of, uh, the, the job description of a shepherd is, is to watch at night, but in the morning to return the sheep to the village of the owner. And as they return, they're called to give a report. We don't know where this village is. It may very well be that the village that they would return to come sunrise would be the very village of Bethlehem. We're not told. And as the shepherds would return with the sheep, part of their job description was to present a full account of everything that happened during the night. The next shift needs to know. If there was a sheep that was hurt, they need to know. If a lamb was born, they need to know. If a predator was sighted, they need to know. All of this would be a part of the report that the shepherds would give as they come into the village. Presumably they did this, but they did something else according to verse 20. The story of the redemption of Jesus Christ slipped into their ordinary report. They returned on the clock, as it were, giving a report But they added to their report a report of cosmic circumstances. Nobody hired them as theologians. Nobody hired them as rabbis or as messengers. These are legitimate vocations during their day, but it's not their vocation. They're shepherds. And ironically, the report that they give is that their own vocation has somehow been usurped by a greater shepherd. They come back giving a report that is far beyond what their abilities ought to be able to capture. They give a report of the story of redemption breaking in. It is here. It is happening. It is now. That's their report. And part of that report is that there is actually a greater shepherd than them. That there is a great shepherd And that great shepherd is at work. He is drawing the people of God into peace and reconciliation with God. They are actually bringing not primarily their own report, but the report of this greater shepherd. Not only this, they're bringing a report in which they say that they are out with the sheep, caring for the sheep, but the plan that was revealed to them is a plan that calls everyone in the village sheep. You are sheep. In need of a shepherd, they say. Is it tragic to you that we're not told what the exact response of the villagers is 
It, it is to me, I really want to know exactly how the villagers responded to such a remarkable message. These uneducated men who ought to only be talking to us about sheep say that there is a greater shepherd, that greater shepherd is at work, and all of you are sheep in need of that shepherd. An astounding message. What was the response of the people of Bethlehem? And uh, next week we're going to look at the response of one, and that is uh, Herod. And I think there might be some some clues there as to the overall response in Bethlehem. But my hunch is that the response was not positive because the message was just simply too large. It's too amazing. And the proclaimers of the message, they don't have the kind of reputation that would merit listening to them. But be that as it may, as these shepherds return, they bring with them a message that needs to sink in. Their audience has grown tired of waiting for evidence of God's plan of redemption. It has been buried under the grass, so to speak. And there are some here this morning who may also find the meaning behind Christmas to be so deeply encrusted with tradition and interpretation that nothing of Christ can be seen there at all. The message of the shepherds was this. God has not blithely left you to unwind your days as profitably as possible. You may feel that, but God has not left you to blithely unwind your days as profitably as possible. He has been the vigilant one. He is watching his plan. He is driving that plan to unfold even in your own day that you would be saved from the torturous activity of burying the gospel of Jesus under layers and layers of your own grass and know that this plan will not be stopped. He says to you this morning that your life holds a purpose. And that purpose is to return to him by his son. You were lost. You were wandering. And not only that, there are dangers all around you that you're not suited for, whether you acknowledge this or not. You think that you have everything safely under control. You think that you have provided well for the future. But you know You can't protect yourself even from tomorrow. You know that. And if you can't protect yourself from tomorrow, please tell me how you'll be able to keep yourself protected after death because you can't guarantee tomorrow. You can't guarantee what things are going to be like even after your own death. You cannot keep yourself safe. The Bible says that you are a sheep in need of a shepherd. And the shepherd comes crying out to you, And this is the bright light that you are called to listen to in the gospel of redemption. You cannot keep yourself safe. Are you hearing the words of the Bible? You can't perfect yourself. And if you could perfect yourself, why haven't you done so already? And the shepherd cries out and the shepherd cries out. And he shows to you a story of redemption that is better than the story of redemption you've concocted for yourself. That is Christmas. That is the message of the shepherds as they go into Bethlehem. That is the message of this church. You must have Christ or you have nothing at all. You are so desperate. You must have Christ or you have nothing at all. 
And the Bible says that if you deny that message, your life is very similar to covering yourself with topsoil layer by layer by layer. And yet his plan is revealed. Why are you not listening? Why are you not listening? Please pray with me. Father, Christmas is one of those seasons that just seems to be owned by everyone but you. Everyone has a say, but where's your say? And Father, in your word, we see that there's a proclamation of the gospel of redemption, that it is real, that there is hope, that there is some kind of peace that can be had. Is it possible, God? Is it possible? So says the promise of the gospel. And Father, we're grateful for that proclamation. Thank you, Father, for saving us, for providing the only only means by which we can be saved through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for making this plan known. And we pray that you would be with us as a church, that we would serve that purpose of making the gospel more and more and more known. Father, thank you for that message. Thank you for that message. Thank you for that message. In Jesus' name, amen.